Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .net. I'm Sean Kleber, your host, and with me today are Wai Lu. How you doing, Sean? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. Nice weather, but it's supposed to get hot, so that's not going to be so nice. So softball started up again, even though it's been restricted conditions. Everybody's got to wear a mask, things like that, so I've been involved in that. But my next game on Tuesday is supposed to be like 96 degrees, so that's kind of hard. That's hot, right? Got to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 96 degree, I don't what, what is that in Celsius? I don't know. Probably like 40, 35, I don't know. But it's probably yeah. hot. <laughs> All right. And our other co-host, Caleb Wells. Hey, Caleb. Hey, y'all. You can tell us uh, about it. Yeah, well, I was going to say, if if we don't have a tropical storm and flooding, we have 100 plus degree heat. But hey, that's that's summer in the south. So. All right. Our special guest today is Jeremy Lickness. Hi, Jeremy. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Enjoying the steaming hot 61 degree summer weather here in uh, northern Washington. Do you want to improve the quality of your source code? There's a great solution, a static code analyzer. PBS Studio is a tool designed to detect errors and potential vulnerabilities in the source code programs written in C, C++, C Sharp, and Java. The analyzer can be used on Windows, Linux, and Mac OS. PBS Studio performs static code analysis and generates a report that helps a programmer find and fix bugs. It performs a wide range of code checks and is also useful in finding misprints and copy-paste errors. There's a good opportunity to get a month free trial and save your project from bugs. Follow the link in the bio, download PBS Studio for free at devchat.tv slash PBS and use the promo code ADV.net, A-D-V-D-O-T-N-E-T. Yeah, I always love doing yeah. over there. Well, we're happy to have you today. Going to talk about some interesting stuff. Yeah. Can you kind of tell us your background, where you started, how you got into this and .NET? Oh, boy. All right. And this show is how many hours? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I actually got started with programming at a very young age. I started when I was seven. There's a little bit of a story behind that. I had a, a computer at the house and no game. So I typed in a program from the manual, saw it running and was instantly hooked, knew that that's what I wanted to do. And came into a professional development career in a roundabout way. I did not finish college and was convinced that I couldn't get a job because of that and sort of worked my way in through a customer service role and started out on mid-range computers. These were called AS400 at the time. They're I-series now, programming in a wonderful language called RPG, which uh, was one of those fun languages that it mattered what column that you put code in, right? So that sort of dates me. But very early on, I'd been exposed to the internet in college. So when my company started looking at an internet-based application back in the late 90s, I quickly put in every effort I could to move into that team. And I was a development manager at the time. They said, you're going to be demoted to a software developer on the team. I said, I don't care. The internet's where it's at. So I moved over to the internet and of course, one of the, the tools that we had in the early days were the early incarnations of SQL Server and classic ASP. That's where I got exposed. And when .NET came out, it was a natural progression. So I've been using .NET since it was released. And for the majority of my career over several decades, I was building line of business applications using .NET as the back end. The front end would change. Sometimes it was uh, .NET MVC app. Sometimes it was Angular but that was my main focus. I did several years in product side. I did a decade on the consulting side. 
And then just three years ago, I had the opportunity to join Microsoft on the Cloud Advocate team. I did that for several years, traveled the world. This was back when we could still travel, saw some amazing places, and then more recently moved on to be a program manager for the .NET team focused on data. Very cool. Awesome. You, you brought up several keywords that to bring up good and bad memories. You know, AS four hundred, mm-hmm. classic ASP, <laughs> RPG, oh, RPG, there. RPG. RPG that's, that's not RPG. That's not related to Dungeons Dragons, right? No, unfortunately <laughs> not. It's it's actually short for report generator. If you can think of a more exciting name for a language than that, then my hat off to you. Yeah. I think I uh, read on your site that one of your first computers was a TI-994A. It, it was. In the TI-994A, I did a lot of basic development in, but I didn't get into serious programming until I got my Commodore 64. Then I uh, doubled the RAM to 64 kilobytes and started learning assembly programming. And that's that's what really got me hooked. Yeah. I remember using a TI-994A in high school. So we used it for journalism <laughs> class. So for publishing the the school newspaper so that was interesting yeah isn't it amazing that something so slow with so little memory could actually pull off a feat like that i mean barely but it could still pull it (laughs) off yeah well my first computer was radio shack color computer with 4k of ram so and cassette drive so yeah ti-994a was screaming (laughs) that's right yeah so uh working at microsoft i think one of the topics that uh was something you wanted to discuss was any framework core and we're coming up with a new version with dotnet 5 right we are dotnet 5 is an interesting version so i mean there's a little bit of history behind entity framework core for people who aren't as familiar with it you know we had entity framework versions that iterated until we hit ef6 and then there was a big jump to an entity framework core version and the team this was before i joined but they took advantage of that jump to really rearchitect parts of the application and modernize it and and try to tap into some new areas it was an old architecture and They wanted to refresh that architecture. But what's interesting is to give customers the ability to bridge the gap between .NET Framework and .NET Core, EF6 has a version that is .NET Core compatible. So you're able to take a entity framework application that uses EF6 and provide it doesn't use any .NET framework specific pieces of that. It can migrate forward to .NET Core using EF6. And then EF Core is the set of versions that are specifically tied to the .NET Core framework. And that's where all the new developments take in place. There's not new development in EF6, but EF Core 5 has some pretty major changes coming out with it. And there's a lot of features that have been widely requested that are being baked into it. And we're releasing that on the same cadence that .NET and ASP.NET come out with. So if you see a .NET 5 preview come out, then there's going to be an EF Core preview coming out with that. Okay. So I'm most familiar with you know, EF6 because I've been using full framework for the past, you know, almost what 18, 19 years. But of course, any framework itself hasn't been around that long, but I've been using any framework since it really came out because I do a lot of lot with SQL Server. So being a little bit familiar with EF Core, you know, what's the major changes between EF Core and the EF Core for .NET 5? So there's a few things. Going from EF6 to EF Core is a a bit of a jump. And going from EF Core 2 to EF Core 3, there was a very intentional reworking that unfortunately broke some existing functionality. And the team is pretty serious about maintaining as much backwards compatibility as possible. 
but I want to set the stage for five because going to three, the entire quarry pipeline was re-engineered. And, you know, at a, a high level, I think a lot of people recognize the portion of Entity Framework that says, hey, I can define C-sharp classes, I can run link queries against them, and it magically returns from the database. But behind the scenes, there's a lot happening, right? Because I might do a query that says a string starts with A. And string starts with is a method call in C-sharp in the .NET framework. And that's not necessarily something that the database has. So there has to be this translation step. And the changes that were made were re-engineering the pipeline with an I2 performance. And there's something called client-side evaluation. And if you're familiar with Link, you can define your, your query, your predicate, your where clause, your order by. But until you actually materialize it, you start iterating over entities within that, nothing actually happens. So you're just basically shaping the query. Once you start iterating, then it's like pulling the trigger. And that's when things start to get pulled back. So you could try to send everything to the database, and the database is really great at doing things like sorting and filtering based on the indexes and everything else. But there are some types of commands that are better evaluated on the client. So you pull back a subset of entities, and then you basically use link to objects and filter those in memory. And so the, the major changes were the way that works and when it switches to client side and database side, if you will, evaluation. In EF5, there is a feature called split queries that basically looks at the fact that you might have a query that accesses multiple collections. And in some cases, doing a, like a left outer join in the database makes sense for that. In other cases, you might be duplicating data down the stream. So you have this Cartesian explosion of data coming back. And so what split queries does, for example, is it allows you to control whether or not that is sent to the database and pulled back in a single request, or you might have two requests, one to get collection A, one to get collection B, and then the join is in memory. And of course, if you have a really large set, you don't necessarily want to do it with memory. So unfortunately, there's not a magic way for EF Core to say, hey, it's going to be best to go this way or that way, but it's provided that flexibility. So that's one example of a feature coming in EF Core 5. Another example that just came out with the latest preview is uh, has many. And has many is a many-to-many -many relationship. And the easiest way to explain it is when we post to blogs, we put tags on blogs, right? So a tag might belong to multiple blog posts and a blog post might have multiple tags. In previous versions of NND Framework, you had to explicitly specify those relationships and explain how those relationships worked. Sometimes all you care about is navigation. I want to get from a post to a tag. Sometimes you might want metadata about that relationship. So that link between the post and the tag may have information with it. What the changes that the team is focused on really to come out with .NET Core 5 is to be able to implicitly understand those relationships. And then if that changes down the road, minimize the impact for your application. So basically with the latest version, I can define a post with a tags and that is enough. Just having my class reference a collection of tags is enough now for Entity Framework Core to understand that relationships there, build the foreign keys, wire everything in and pull them in. You don't have to fluently configure it. If down the road, you start to have information, what we'd call a link table, right? That relationship has metadata. You can configure that and add to it without necessarily breaking your model. 
And those are just scratch the surface. There's changes for Cosmos DB, which is new for EF Core compared to EF6. We have a provider that works on top of Cosmos DB. So there are a lot of features packed into this release. I have a question about the has many. But yeah, one of the things that, that we've had to do with EF Core, which we've we've been using since version one, because we started a, a new project shortly after .NET Core and uh, EF Core were released. And one of the things that, that we've we found we had to do in certain instances was do the uh, dot include, which would say which relationships do you want to pull in and, and to get the data set correct. What you're saying with has many is that's no longer going to be required, or is this a different situation? This is, is slightly different, and I've probably been calling it the, the wrong term. The engineering team's going to come after me, but it's many-to-many. <laughs> Has-many has is a convention for configuring, but it's many-to-many relationships. So okay. there are relationships, period, and you can have hierarchies and things that contain. So there's the part of the experience that defines what those relationships are, and mm-hmm. then there's the part of the experience that defines what you want to bring back in a query. And there's multiple ways that you can bring things back. By default, it's going to pull the parent object and not the children. Okay. Uh, the includes tells it to explicitly include it. And then we also have proxies that are lazy loading proxies that if you activate those, it'll pull in the parents and create proxies for the children. So the first time they're accessed, it issues that database call and pulls them back. So it's a very flexible okay. mechanism based on what makes sense for your application. Great. Great. You still have to... Go ahead, Mike. I was going to say, is the many-to-many thing, was that something that was that was previously in EF6? Because I thought that that feature existed already. But maybe uh, there are s- some issues, and I'm actually, there is a document that we can link to in the, the show notes or whatever. But basically, there's a matrix that shows the feature set correlation between EF Core and EF6. And some of the features you'll find, uh, most of the features in EF6 are making it into EF Core 5. And that's not the goal in and of itself is feature parity with EF6, but mm-hmm. more a focus on what's in demand. And some of these are in demand because they're you know part of that migration path. But if you look at many-to-many navigations, EF6.4 had those, and that's what's coming forward on, on 5.0 in that. But there are several... Sp- Features like uh, constructors with parameters and shadow state properties, alternate keys, et cetera, that are in EF core that aren't in EF6. So it's not mm-hmm. a one-to-one mapping, but we have a doc page that that shows the matrix of, of how those features correlate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in EF core 6, you didn't have to create an intermediate object to do a many-to-many relationship. But in the early versions of EF core, you had to manually create that intermediate object. In .NET 5, do you still have to manually create that? intermediate object or can you just make the relationship and say it's many to many like an EFCX? You just you just make the relationship. In okay. fact, you don't even have to configure it. Just including it as a subtype on the entity is enough for EF cord into it that it's going to create that that relationship. Sweet. Yeah, I've been waiting for that. Was one thing that was really nice about EF6 is e- the ease to make a many many relationship. So mm-hmm. and another thing that I liked about EF core is how you can now set the as no tracking attribute on the context. You don't have to do it for every single query that you don't need tracking on. So that was nice. Right. I don't think a lot of people know about that. You can now do it at the context level, not each query. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with EF6. Yeah, I joined the team kind of late in the game and hadn't used it as much. But the uh, global query filters is a pretty powerful feature as well. And that's basically setting some parameters that apply to all the requests. So things like multi-tenancy can be handled by that. So I set 
the filter to always return from a tenant. So nice. Yeah, we're dealing with some multi-tenant stuff in a, a new app where we're building. We've dug into the Fetnet core startup middleware and configured a bunch of our own uh, code to get our client set up to work. So it'll be interesting to take a look at how EF Core 5 is is handling that. Yeah, that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed about EF Core 5 is all the extensibility points. Mm-hmm. I've been building, you know, one of our focus is, for example, because it's .NET standard, it can be used in a Xamarin app. It's not something we set out and said, hey, we want this to run on Xamarin apps, but it turns out quite a few people are actually using it that way. And so as a result, the team realized we need to make a effort to provide kind of a first-class experience for every platform that it's supported on. So I've been working with the team to have guidance for Xamarin, for Blazor, for WPF, for WinForms, since both of those are are coming to .NET Core. And yeah. in building some of those reference apps, just being able to do things like, you know, automatically audit entities by intercepting a save at the, the DB context level and other features like that are just very useful and things that we used to have to write elaborate architecture and frameworks to take care of that kind of plug and play right now. What about the data sources? Like, is, so energy, I've only used Entity Framework for, I guess, relate, I guess, SQL, I guess, but it, it supports Cosmos now. What about like, stuff like MongoDB and things like that? Is there any plans so for that? There, there's no plans currently for MongoDB. And actually, we have a pretty good relationship with that team. And they have their own provider that uses Link to MongoDB. The Cosmos DB SDK also has that. But one of the reasons we provide support for that, and you know, because honestly, before I even joined, I was a skeptic of why put EF Core in front of Cosmos DB. And I asked some people, talked to some, some people using that. And it turns out there's a, a few reasons that that makes sense. You know, EF Core is not designed to be this generic. You can write code once and it runs exactly the same on all the backend databases. It's just mm. that the team has no desire to do that because that would be a lowest common denominator. There's features specific to each database. But you can do things like share models, share some context, and there's functionality that makes sense. I know there's an internal team at Microsoft, for example, that has information that has to span to SQL Server and Cosmos DB. And so they use Azure Functions and they wire up a provider for Cosmos and SQL Server to do it. Some of the things that the Cosmos DB provider provides, (laughs) not to be redundant, but for example, the, this idea of a, a, a database collection in a, in a NoSQL database, your collection can have multiple schema types. That's one of the advantages. There's not, I'm not breaking a schema. I can include properties, omit properties. I can even have different types. And one of the services EF Core provides is automatic discriminators. So if I want to store you know, product, product details, account sales, et cetera, in the same collection, I can do that and it's transparent to the user because behind the scenes, EF Core will add a field that tags the type as a discriminator in the type and it'll automatically filter just to those documents that satisfy an account or an account detail or whatever entity you're scoping to. So things like that and things like many of the customers I've talked to when I asked, why are you using EF Core on Xamarin or why are you using EF Core for Cosmos DB? They say, you know, we really look at EF Core as a data access language. And so we want to use that same API, that same setup. 
And that's what we try to provide is that minimal barrier to entry. You create some entities, you tell it you want to use Cosmos DB, give it some connection string information, and then it takes care of creating the collection, inserting the documents, tagging the discriminators, et cetera. So you mentioned, right, the, the work you're doing to have EF Core be in line with .NET Standard and work with multiple technologies within the Microsoft stack. One of the ones that, that you've actually done a series on and focused some on is how Blazor and EF Core work together. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, that's Blazor is one of the really exciting technologies I'm having a fun time with. And this is another one that when it first came out, I said, oh, just a, another web front end. <laughs> I've already worked with Angular and React and Vue, and I'm familiar with Svelte. And then we've got MVC. And of course, I was a huge Silverlight fan and user back in the day. And I, I saw people saying, oh, is this and you admit You admit that. <laughs> I admit it. I do. In fact, the, the book I wrote on it helps raise my monitor to just the right ergonomic level. So it works out great. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. perfect. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's right on top of the Windows Runtime book, but that's another story for another day. So with, with Blazor, I tried it out and was immediately blown away by how easy it was for me to get up and running with my first application. And the fact that it runs on top of WebAssembly, which is a standard that's implemented in all the modern browsers, works on phone, works on tablet, works on laptop, it doesn't have that same plug-in problem that Silverlight suffered from, makes it very approachable, accessible, I should say. So I started working with Blazor, and there's there's two flavors of Blazor for those listening who aren't familiar with, with Blazor. It allows you to build single-page web applications using C-sharp, and the way that you template your web pages is using Razor syntax, which is what you can do for ASP.NET Core projects anyway. So it's a very similar syntax. The two flavors are WebAssembly, which runs the Blazor client directly inside your browser, and then there's a Blazor server that uses the exact same code, programming model, everything. In fact, you can share probably 95% of UI and code between a server and a WebAssembly project. But the uh, server side basically places a lightweight JavaScript shim in the browser, and all of the rendering and interactivity happens on the server. So you get this trade-off where it's a more straightforward architecture because you're not having to deal with that. I'm on the client or the server. I can call out to my database directly versus if you're in but the server's taking on more load, right? It's handling the connections for every user. And so a lot of where my work came from was looking at two things. One is what is a good approach to connecting to data from Blazor WebAssembly, given that it's in the browser and on the client. And the other was what is the recommended approach for the server? And I'll talk about server first because that one has an interesting nuance. The way that you register with the extension methods for EF Core, you register a database context, it's usually scoped by default, which in ASP.NET Core apps like a web API, it's basically that controller lifetime. So you f do a get or a post, and you have a context that lives for the duration of that get or post. That same lifetime in Blazor Server means something different because Blazor Server uses SignalR to communicate with the clients. And every connection has something called a circuit. And a circuit, think of it as a session, basically, between a user and the server. So now scoped actually means the duration of that session. So if I just configure my DB context as a scoped 
DB context, it means every page I'm visiting in that Blazor server app is reusing the same DB context, which creates some issues because the way DB context is designed, it's not meant to have concurrent asynchronous operations. One operation should finish before the next. In fact, it tracks this and it will throw an exception if you try to request two things asynchronously from the same context at the same time. And in Blazor Server, some early adopters were running into some friction where they were using kind of that out-of-the-box model for registering the context, and then they'd have controls that might be rendering in parallel and firing off the asynchronous events at the same time. So I started off just, you know, what is the the guidance? And really, we came up with what I think, I hate saying simple, because instant, you know, they named SOAP Simple Object Access Protocol. And anyone who worked with WCF knows just how simple uh-uh. that was, right? Yeah, no. I'm, wor- I'm working with SOAP. I'm working with SOAP this week, so, you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But uh, so, so I'll hesitate to call this simple, but maybe straightforward. For most cases, especially if you're just reading data in, a data context per operation makes sense because I can read it, close it down, render the information. If I need to update it, I create a DB context, attach what I need to update, and finish it. So that's the 99% case. And DB context has been designed to have very low overhead for creation. So there's not a, a concern about multiple concurrent users spinning up their own DB context. We've, we've tested this and it, it's pretty straightforward. One of the features that people like about Entity Framework Core, well, actually a few features, one is the change tracking. So the fact that I can have a rich object graph, maybe multiple entities and even deep entities, so an entity with uh, nested components, and I can modify those and NED Framework Core can keep track of all those changes and basically send one update that handles the deletes, insertions, and updates. So that's one thing. The other thing is concurrency resolution. So NED Framework Core can be configured to automatically detect when there's concurrency changes, give you an exception, and even give you helpers to take a snapshot of what changed underneath the covers So you can present something to the user to say, hey, this change, here's the fields that are different. Do you want to refresh or force your changes, et cetera? So for those to have a longer-lived DV context, we basically have this feature of Blazor Server called Owning Component Base. And that is a special override on the typical lifetime of uh, objects in, in dependency injection that lives for the lifetime of the component. So if I have an edit grid, I can use this Owning Component Base and basically pull in a DB context that lives for the duration of that edit grid so that it can still track and aggregate those changes over time when you pull the trigger. So that's what the series was about to sort of show that guidance on the uh, Blazor server side. And we're working on cleaning up that sample and publishing it as part of the official documentation. And I've been talking a lot, so I'll, I'll pause before I talk about the, the WebAssembly side, see if you have any feedback for me. <laughs> Do you ever have trouble just getting into the flow? You find that your tool is great, like Visual Studio, but you could just get more out of it or get some stuff out of your way or have it give you better feedback that you would be able to get into flow easier. Well, let me tell you about Code Rush. Code Rush actually solves this problem for you. So the first thing that it does is it actually gives you a visualizer on the way that the code is set up, and it actually helps you debug stuff 
in an intuitive way that makes it easy for you to figure out what's going on. This really helps me stay in the flow when I'm trying to write code. Another thing that it does is it has a whole bunch of navigation options that you can get used to. Now, this is something that I figured out with Emacs was something that I really got into. So when I started using Emacs, just the key bindings and, and kind of the natural flow of things made me a much, much more efficient programmer. And the quick navigation in Code Rush is awesome. You should definitely try it out. They have code analysis, so they'll pick out some of the issues maybe for complexity or diagnose some other code issues. It'll point out code smells. It'll help you refactor your code. So the code analysis is another thing where I don't have to actually go in and sit down and think, okay, have I made any mistakes in this code? Because it actually highlights them. And finally, it just validates like your code coverage and all of the other things that you're trying to look at and gives you real numbers and real feedback on the quality of your coding and the quality of your tests. So go check out Code Rush. You can get it at devexpress.com slash products slash Code Rush, or just go to devchat.tv slash Code Rush, and it'll send you to the right place. Once again, that's devchat.tv slash Code Rush. Yeah, I've been always really excited about Blazor. We had, you know, about a year ago, we had our first show on Blazor. And, you know, I'm just, just really excited about it because I've been doing web forms forever, but I also do some Angular. So a lot of the concepts were very similar to me being component-based architecture. So it works real well. One of the downsides I found on the initial testing out on the server for Blazor was that session-based state of what the viewer, what the user is actually seeing in, in his screen. And if you need to make a change to the application, you re it reset all the state on the server. And then that the user got this, you need to reconnect type message, which was kind of messy. But I think they've came out with ways to control that now. So even using server-side Blazor, it can retain state even upon you know changes to the application. Is that right? I'm not as familiar with the latest changes in Blazor. I know for a while we had some recommended solutions for state management. So as things change, there's a way, it's actually interesting, even using Blazor server side, you can store state to the local storage or the session storage in the browser. And then when it reconnects, it actually makes a pass to rehydrate that state and bring it back in. There are server side solutions as well, but that is the one that I worked with the most frequently, but not, not as familiar if there's something and they've had few releases. I've been, it feels like kind of a hamster on a treadmill keeping up with the, the release cadence. All good bits coming out, but that team is, is working quickly and adding a lot of features. Yeah, that sounds like a good solution to use local storage there is one thing. I think the other option might be doing like the old session state in SQL Server. If you remember right. remember that, you could, you, instead of doing session in the memory, you could tell it to, to do it SQL Server. You can do similar things with Blazor, which would help with that reconnect. It really, right? it really is amazing how far they've come in the last year. Because I remember a little over a year ago, it was the first time I heard about it before our podcast. And I was like, what? Huh? How does that work? And I mean... Right now you have server side and client side and it's, I know they're going to continue to, to grow it, but it really is production ready. If you were starting something now and, and you wanted to to use the whole .NET ecosystem, front, back, middleware, right? Yeah. I mean, a huge thing for the Blazor WebAssembly was the uh, debug implementation and being able to, to step through 
C sharp code on, on the client. Right. That was huge for me and was a big wow the first time it lit up when I got to use it. So what is the current status of Blazor WebAssembly? Uh, that that's interesting. So Blazor WebAssembly itself is is phenomenal, works great. Most of the time you're gonna do a traditional client server model. So you're gonna use an HTTP client, connect to an API, bring that data back. What I love about the way it works, though, is let's say for whatever reason you wanted to share code between a server and a WebAssembly app, you can literally create an iAccess service, and the server implementation just call to the database on the WebAssembly implementation, use the HTTP client to call to a controller that calls to the database, and the code looks the same. It's still using that iDataAccess implement interface, but the implementation is just different. But like the, the people probably who said, oh, it's done at standard, I can run it on Xamarin, I got to thinking, can I run EF Core in the browser? And there's really two targets that make sense. SQL Server, not so much because it uses some ports and protocols that aren't supported in the browser sandbox. It has to play by the, the browser rules. But instantly it came to mind that Cosmos DB has a direct connect and then what's called a gateway proxy that lets you use HTTPS to connect to it. And so I said, hey, let's let's try that out. And there were some issues with some internal code that wasn't quite compatible with the WebAssembly runtime, but the team quickly responded to it when I raised the issues and they fixed that. And so one of the first things that I was able to build with uh, EF Core in Blazor WebAssembly, so running in the browser, was our provider on top of Cosmos DB. And that's not to imply that you have to even use EF Core for that. You can use the Cosmos DB SDK directly. And as long as you connect through that HTTPS mode, you can start retrieving things. Now, the, the challenge is that you need credentials to connect to Cosmos DB, and you don't want to store those credentials in the, the client. I don't care how much you encrypt them. If you can decrypt them, someone at the client can decrypt them, and then they have access. So the solution I came up with basically authenticates with Azure Active Directory and talks to a server, or in the case of a more recent blog post, an Azure function, so it's completely serverless. That function asks Cosmos DB for a token, that's only good for me, only has my access. And I can control if it's read, I can even scope it to a partition in a container. So I can only do limited things with that token and it expires. And then the token is what gets passed to the client and then the client connects directly and works on that. The other scenario in WebAssembly is SQLite and the Uno team who is working on a solution that's like Blazor, but where Blazor uses Razor templating the Uno solution uses XAML and takes a XAML approach. They've done some amazing work to get SQLite running in the browser using WebAssembly and then being able to connect to it with EF Core, for example. That sounds awesome, especially the how you figured out how to handle authentication using Azure Functions to create the token for you. Yeah, I learned way more about authentication than I ever wanted to, but now <laughs> I, I feel like I've benefited from that and I can help some others out. I was surprised at, at how much you can really do both in Blazor Server and WebAssembly with authenticating and getting using tokens basically to access resources. So you now have, have experience, right, with SQL and Cosmos DB with EF Core. Uh, I have no experience with Cosmos. Do you prefer one over the other? Do you find one meets certain needs better than, than the other? 
there are definitely tools in the toolbox. So if I were doing a a application that is is products and items and SKUs, and I need sort of that relational integrity, I'd still probably go with a, a SQL database to do that and maintain that. But for things like, for example, I have a link shortener that I built. It's a serverless link shortener. And for me, what it does is it gives me insights into what links people are interested in so that I don't bore them to death with things that I think are cool and no one clicks on, right? So for that, I just dump that into Cosmos DB and it's it's very low overhead. I started out with one schema. I realized I wanted different information. I changed the schema and it just works. So I think there are scenarios that make a lot of, of sense with Cosmos DB especially if you have a very flexible schema, if you will. And if you have, if your data is encapsulated, so you don't have a lot of references, but for example, an address can completely live with a contact, that's a great candidate for Cosmos DB. But if you have this denormalized concept of an address may change and everything related to the address change, then perhaps the the relational for SQL. So I'd say for different workloads and quite frankly, you know, I've worked with production solutions that use both. So the source of truth for inventory and SKUs is SQL Server, but then the usage data, the order history, the shopping cart, things like that are Cosmos DB, and it's, you know, right tool for the, the right job. And then there's a whole other discussion that comes in when you look at, like, costing models and everything else, but... The, uh, from a practical, just a technical perspective, you know, I like both for, for different reasons, if that makes sense. Well, Cosmos is also incredibly scalable, right? I think yes. it's SQLism. So if you, that's another use case that's, that would fit more, more than traditional relational database. So. Well, I think if you look at Azure SQL specifically, they've done quite a bit to, to build the, the type of scaling that you see. I'm not as familiar with it, but one of the things I'm doing is actually working with that team to make sure that we have a seamless experience of connecting EF Core to Azure SQL. They are building in a lot of features that may not necessarily be part of on-prem or may work differently because of the service model. So we're making sure that we we vet those. And I'm, I'm pretty impressed with, for example, you know, I would think if I just need to store some JSON data that I might need to query later, that I'd use Cosmos DB for that. But they've got support for storing JSON properties that are indexed. So there's there's a lot of features, I think, to consider. So I wouldn't make it as, as, as blanket of a, a statement. Now, having said that, I've certainly done more with scaling on the Cosmos side than the Azure SQL side. And that's just personal experience, not preference. So is there anything that we haven't covered about EF Core, Blazor, things like that that you're involved with that uh, our listeners should know about? Yeah, I think one interesting, uh, well, there's a few interesting things. So when I got this role of of PM for .NET Data, everyone, I think, instantly clicked and said EF Core. And the role is actually about all of of data. I I work with uh, .NET for Spark, for example. That's my foray into big data. I'm very interested in APIs. You know, some of my work with Blazor WebAssembly is this when you're, it's very easy, relatively speaking, to get a entity in the client to post an update to delete. But if you have a complex filter and sort, serializing that across the wire isn't as straightforward. And there's lots of options. There's OData, there's a REST API you can overload, there's gRPC. 
things like that, I'm very interested in figuring out what is the optimal experience so that as a developer, I really in my client app just kind of want to write link and do a to list and have it work and then behind the scenes make something happen. So those are things I'm exploring. But more importantly, the EF Core team owns more than EF Core. We've got uh, a team member that owns the uh, PostgreSQL provider. And we have uh, Bryce on our team is uh, manages the SQLite provider. We work very closely with the SQL client team. So we're very much, I think, more a data in general team. And out of that, there's, there's two things I want to point out. One is that as part of the push for .NET 5, all of .NET, not just our team, has recognized the need to have a more straightforward path and documentation. We recognize that you know, developers, if you know what you're working on, if you know I'm going to connect to Cosmos DB and I want to know how to, to set up my partition key, you can probably get to that document. But if you're a new .NET developer and you're saying, I'm going file new and I want a place to store my data, that might be a little more difficult to navigate. So we've got an effort involved, not to necessarily to write new documentation, but to restructure the hierarchy, the way it presents, the way you navigate to it. So I am owning the data portion of that, but that spans everything from caching to APIs to different database providers. And one of the things that we're doing is we're not saying, we know best, here you go, we've just made things great for you. We want the community to participate. So we have an open issue under the .NET docs repo. So it's github.com slash .NET.docs. And the issue, there's a overarching issue for all of the .NET documentation. And then there's a sub-issue for .NET data. And we link that out in our updates. But the idea is to have the community come in and tell us, you know, what would you like to see? How would you like to navigate? And so we're really interested in not only guiding people to the information, but we're also interested in the entire ecosystem, the community at large. So for example, it is not going to be, don't be surprised if you land on a Microsoft documentation page and we have a recommendation to use Dapper for a query. And some people are surprised and they say, doesn't Dapper compete with EF Core? And Honestly, we have customers who use both and they have very high read performance requirements where they need something just really lightweight that they can send a raw SQL query, materialize it to a lightweight object and present it. And that makes sense for Dapper, whereas if you're doing concurrency detection, if you're doing change tracking, that makes sense for EF Core. So we want to really embrace community. GraphQL, we don't have a native GraphQL solution, but there's some community solutions out there. So we want to start to pull those in and help people get out to that information. So if I'm new to .NET and I want to stand up GraphQL, I know how to, to figure that out. So, so that's one thing that I encourage people to, to look at, and we can share the, the link for that. And then the other piece is we have a twice monthly, well, every other week, basically community standup. And again, because it's the EF Core team, it's called the EF Core Community Standup. <laughs> But we're really focused on data topics. We've done several EF Core topics, but I'm going to have someone on who's talking about .mem.sync, which is a solution for offline sync to help out with that. We're looking at bringing some people to talk about spatial SQL. I hope to get a SQLite team. But the reason I bring this up is for people listening, if you have a suggestion for something you'd like to see, someone you'd like to come onto the show, it doesn't have to be EF Core related. 
It can be data related whatsoever. We're looking to bring on as many people as possible, highlight community projects, highlight community blog posts. We have a discussion on our GitHub repo. It's github.net EF core. And then on the discussions tab, there's open discussions to suggest guests for the show and topics and things like that. And I, I strongly encourage people, you know, my hope is that a year from now, people think of the team as the data team who has this product that helps with data called EF Core, but is, you know, knowledgeable and can guide people to other solutions and products as well, if that makes sense. And the community standups, they're online videos that people can watch either live or past episodes. Is that right? That's correct. So it's, it's basically every other Wednesday, we just had one this Wednesday. And so the next one will be two weeks out. And I know people listening to this are, are not going to have context for that, but we post the, if you go to live.theword.net, so live.net and put a period in my pauses, <laughs> then uh, that is where you can see all the community standups, including the F core. The, the thing about it is it is very much live and we monitor chat where we stream to YouTube and Twitch. And it's an opportunity for people to ask questions live, both of us and our guests. And then everything's recorded and it's pretty much immediately available to watch offline on YouTube for those who can't make that time slot. Awesome. Well, I hope we, we can bump up your listeners or watchers to the community standup from our uh, listeners to the podcast. So hopefully that works out. Do check it out. Anybody else have some last questions for Jeremy? No, I think it's it's been a good discussion. I'm looking forward to to EF4 or EF Core 5 and .NET Core 5 release. Yeah, me too, definitely. Right. So definitely some good things coming down. I mean, it's, they, they've made so much progress over the years. So it's really good to see how much it keeps changing and keeps up with the times. Have you thought about learning to do native iOS development? Are you using Swift at work? Or maybe you've considered writing applications for macOS. We have a podcast that covers all of that called iFreaks. We have a new panel and a lot of exciting things to talk about. So come check us out at iFreaksShow.com. All right. So uh, I guess we should move on to picks. Caleb, what's your pick for this week? My pick this week is not a game. Not a game. (laughs) What? Well, you know, hey, I got to mix in something else at least once every (laughs) six or seven episodes, right? Now, my pick this week is actually Umbrella Academy on Netflix. Season two is coming out July 31st, which will be after this taping, but before, or will, it will have come out since (laughs) you listen to this. Yeah, you guys get it. I am going to, I'll probably binge it once it comes out myself. It's based off of a comic by Gerard Way, and he's he's the front man for, now I'm blanking on it, he's a musician. (laughs) And he created this comic with, with another guy a while back, and it's it's out there. It's very trippy. And the show is not 100%, you know, true to the source material, but it's in line with the source material. So it's it's out there. It's a fun show to watch. Nice. So what's your pick, Why? So today's pick is a website called aptize.io. So it's essentially a website that allows you to run an iPhone emulator inside your browser. And it's really quick. And it just boots up. And I don't know. I don't know about you as a for your web development but usually safari is one of those things that is just like it's like the new ie basically like and when you don't have a mac you kind of have to it's kind of hard to test it so it's just a really handy site where you can just if your website's um stood up you can just 
test to see how it looks like on the iPhone. There's generally like a, there's like a free trial plan where you get like 100 minutes per month, but there's also like, which is sufficient for me, but then there's also like paid plans. All right, cool. So Jeremy, pick anything you want. It could be technical, it could be non-technical, TV, movie, books. What are you going to pick for this week? I'm going to pick technical and non-technical. So my, my pick would be the Oculus Quest. A huge fan of, of VR. I had a HTC Vive and that you know runs off your system. So I have a gaming laptop that I use to power it, but it has a big long cord and a heavy headset and i thought it was the greatest thing and then someone showed me this galaxy quest which is basically a mobile self-contained rig so you can take your vr anywhere and it's been especially useful for me because earlier this year i was i I had this weird tremor like everywhere i'd go my arm would just start shaking uncontrollably and couldn't figure out what it was i saw seven different doctors to try to track down what was going on because someone early on said, oh, it could be Parkinson's, but you're way too young. And it turns out at the end of the day, it was Parkinson's that was causing the tremor. I was diagnosed with young onset Parkinson's disease. And what people may not know about it is, although there's no cure for the disease, there's one thing scientifically proven to slow its progression, and that is regular intense exercise. And I've, I've always been a fan of exercise, but I'm also a fan of having fun exercising. And VR has some really great options. You may have heard of the game Beat Saber, which you're you know basically slashing things with lightsabers to music, but there's a boxing game and there's a lot of different options. So I'm able to take this with me and wherever I go, kind of throw it on and get a nice 30, 60, 90 minute workout. There's even add-ons like virtual fitness watches that games that opt into the SDK, you you get a heads-up display on your wrist of the calories you're burning and everything. So it's it's pretty cool. And for anyone interested in my personal journey, it's a very personal blog, but I share my journey with Parkinson's at a blog called strengthwithparkinsons.com. And I encourage people to to check that out and, and learn more about that. Cool. Cool. Definitely do check that out. My picks this week, I'm actually going to make a couple of them. And oh, first of all, I'm thinking about it. I'd had an Oculus Go for a while and I've been thinking about upgrading. So I'm definitely going to have to look into the Quest or I think they're coming out with some new models pretty soon too. Yeah. Well, they'll always have the the new model right when you're about to grab (laughs) the old one, right? Yeah. So uh, my first pick is actually going to be a Netflix show. It's called Cursed. Anybody watch that yet? Not yet, but it's on my to-do list. Yeah, it's kind of it's an Arthurian legend show and but it's a little bit different than what you're used to, because this is actually from the history and perspective of the woman that would become the Lady of the Lake. So it's kind of it's kind of an angle that you've never really seen before in Arthurian legend. So it, it starts out with her, you know, and following the different travels of her. And then she finds a sword. And of course, it's not so far. They're not calling it Excalibur in the episodes that I've wrote watch it you know it is and then she meets arthur just arthur and his sister mordred and not sister mordred mordred's uh morgana so it's a definitely different angle on it so do check that out on netflix and then my second picks is just for you jeremy i'm gonna pick the michael j fox foundation so awesome yeah so uh you know he was on set pretty early as well so and he's doing pretty well so i think you can uh probably do just as well as him if not better appreciate that yeah all right guys that was a good show we do want to Thanks reach out to those us, yep 
We do want to reach out to our listeners and ask, ask for feedback on the show. So if they want to get in touch with me, let me know how the show's going, what we can do to improve. Get in touch with me at Twitter on at .net superhero. And if people want to get in touch with you, Jeremy, where can they reach out? It's uh, the very creative Twitter handle of at Jeremy Lickness. And it's phonetically Lickness, but without the C. So Jeremy, L-I-K-N-E-S-S, at Jeremy Lickness. It's my Twitter. It's my GitHub. And if you're interested in my blog, it's blog.jeremylickness.com. All right. Thanks, guys. Great episode. And we'll catch, yeah. catch, yep, we'll catch everybody on the next episode of AdventuresIn.net. Bye, y'all. Bye. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.